Well, welcome everybody. Here we are again in the book of Revelation, and we're still in chapter 2, and we're going to finish chapter 2 today, which is the fourth church, the church of Thyatira. But before we get into that, I'll just revise quickly, as we do each week, what we've done so far, so we don't forget, and we can remember all the seven churches in their order. And so, first thing, Revelation one nineteen is the outline of the book of Revelation. It's the things which you have seen, chapter 1. The things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the church age. So it's what we're studying now, the church age, and God's Jesus' messages to the churches or letters to the churches. And then chapters 4 onwards is what is going to happen after. So the rapture, I believe, will happen. And then you've got seven-year tribulation, which is most of the book of Revelation. Then you've got the second coming, then you've got the sheep and goat judgment, which is not in the book of Revelation, but in Matthew. And then you've got the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ, and then the great white throne judgment, and then the new heavens and new earth. And that's basically how it goes. So chapters 2 and 3 contain the personal messages from Jesus to each of the seven churches. So we've studied Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos. Ephesus, as a reminder, is the loveless church. Very good. And it's always important to remember that why we do something is always more important than what we do. Okay, That's a central message from the Church of Ephesus. Why we do something is always more important than what we do. Because God is looking from the heart, and if what we do is not motivated by love for God, then it doesn't count. It's worthless it's useless as first corinthians 13 says it's the wood hay and stubble as corinthians says um, the things we do that are motivated by love for god they are the gold silver and precious stones they are the things which will survive the beam of seat judgment the rewards judgment so what is the solution to leaving a first love what are the three things remember return and do the first works. So basically, returning is repenting. So remember, return, and do the first works. Bible study, uh, prayer, and fellowship. And then we'll be fruitful again. Go back to where you were when you were enjoying your relationship with God. The second letter is addressed to the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church. So the majority of Christians were being persecuted during the years 100 AD to 312 AD. And they were materially poor and were dying for their faith, but Jesus called them rich. And they were rich in faith, hope, and love. Now, the ten days, obviously, in hindsight, we can see that there were ten emperors and all of them persecuted the Christians. So ten days is easy to take as being ten waves of persecution. But in the church at the time, there probably was a literal ten days of persecution. So at the time that John gave these letters, he was warning there would be a time of severe persecution for 10 days. So there would have a literal fulfillment and a figurative fulfillment in the time to come, in a prophetic sense. So they were the rich poor church, rich in faith, but poor materially. Now the third letter was addressed to the church of Pergamos, the compromising church. And this is the church from about 313 to 600, and they were in power with Constantine. And to be in power with the pagans, you have to compromise. And so they had to mix up what they believed with what the pagans believed. And what the example that we looked at there was a coin, and one side of the coin had Christian symbols on, and one side of the coin had the pagan symbols on. They were a poor, rich church, poor in the things of God, but rich in the things of the world. They'd lost their purity and their power. So what Satan could not achieve by persecution and violence, he did achieve by deception and flattery. So I'll just pray, then we'll get into the next church, which is Thyatira. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the messages that you've given us here. Lord, they do speak personally and powerfully to us. And I just pray that you help us take these to heart and where the shoe fits, I pray that we'll put it on, so to speak, and 
Lord, that you'll yeah, reveal yourself to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, I'm just going to start reading in verse 18 of Revelation chapter 2 and read through to 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These say the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira. So what was the city of Thyatira like? Well, it was the smallest and the least important of all the seven cities that Jesus sends a message to, writes a letter to. And there's no record of any real significant political or religious persecution, so it's a bit different. There's probably a reason for that, as we're going to find out. Now, Thyatira was a center of business and trade, and they had what they called back then trade guilds or unions. So you know what a union is, right? Yeah, so a union is an organization that looks after their workers, and if you're not in the unions, Sometimes you don't have the same benefits and the same advantages economically that the other people do who are in the union. So in that day, these unions are very powerful. And we'll get into that in a minute. But each of these unions had their own patron deity from the Greek and Roman pantheon of gods. So each one would have Apollos or Zeus or whatever they chose to have. And they'd each have a god to represent them. Now, Acts 16, 14 to 15 mentions Lydia of Thyatira, who was a seller of purple cloth made in the city of Thyatira. So that was their principal thing they used to make there, this purple cloth. They were really famous for that. And there was a union for purple cloth, the makers of purple cloth. So Lydia most likely had to belong to one of these unions, in particular the union of the purple cloth makers if she was going to stay in business. Now, what this meant was that she would have to go to, most likely, a monthly meeting and that monthly meeting would be held at the temple. Not the temple of God, but a pagan temple, whichever deity that they chose to represent them. What did you do at those temples? Well, sexual immorality and you eat Food sacrificed to idols, okay? Both things that Christians shouldn't be doing. So you see the problems here in this town if you're living there as a Christian. So these guilds or unions had a chokehold on their various business enterprises in Thyatira. So you kind of had to attend these regular union meetings held in the temples, partake in the sexual immorality and eat the food offered to idols. So keep that in mind. That was the temptation anyway, if you wanted to be successful in business. Right. And the next part of verse 18 says, These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now, Jesus introduces himself here with an emphasis on his deity. 
his deity. So in Jewish thought, to be the son of something, or the son of a thing, it meant you have the nature of that thing. So a couple of examples. Isaiah 57 verse 3, the sons of the sorceress. They had the nature of a sorceress. Mark 3.11, the sons of thunder. They had a nature like thunder. They were quite unviolent. So the son of God has the divine nature, the nature of God. Now, the next part of that verse says, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. So he mentioned these attributes back in Revelation chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, when he was describing himself. And what do they speak of? Eyes like fire and feet like fine brass. Judgment. The altar was there, made of brass, in the temple of God, and it represented judgment. It was where the sacrifices were made. So verse 19, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. So what does Jesus know about the Christians in Thyatira? So first of all, he says, I know your works. Now, this is the least significant city among the seven cities that Jesus addressed. Yet, Jesus knew all about them. Now, for us personally, as an application, we might think that, well, I'm just a little nobody. But that's okay. Jesus still knows you. He still knows your works. Everyone is important to God, even the little ones, even the little churches, which is encouraging for us. And he says, what does he know? The works are love, service, faith, and your patience. So in many ways, the church at Thyatira was a model church. They had four really good essential qualities. They had love, both for the Lord and for one another. They knew service. They had faith and patience worth mentioning. Now, one thing that's really important here is a good application for us. This is a really good compliment to the church at Thyatira. It says, as for your works, the last are more than the first. Now, what does that mean? The last are more than the first. It's increasing, yeah. They are growing in love. They are growing in the service. They are growing in faith. And they are growing in patience or perseverance. Now, this should be true for each of us as well. And the guys, we did a book study on the attributes of a godly man. And we had to go and ask people questions about each attribute and saying, what am I like? Well, here's one for us. We can ask someone, here's a challenge for you this week. Ask them, am I growing in love? Not just am I loving, but am I growing in my Christian walk? Am I growing in love, service, faith, and patience or perseverance? Am I becoming more and more like Jesus every day? Can you see the change in me? Then people should be able to see the change in us over time. Okay, so it's a challenge. And there's one thing that we should never be satisfied with. What's that? Our relationship with Jesus, we should always want to go deeper. We should always want to know him more. What did Paul say? That I might know him. He's praying that he can know him more and more. What did Moses ask? Lord, reveal yourself to me. Show me your face. Show me your glory. So here we are, and God wants us to be closer to him. And the only way we're going to increase in our love and our faith and etc. is by growing closer to the Lord. So we should be desiring to read the Bible more, to be praying more. So as we increase in those things and fellowshipping more and sharing our faith more, as we do that, then we'll be growing in our relationship with the Lord, assuming we're doing those things with the right motive. Now, we come to the next section, and this is what Jesus says against the church at Thyatira. So let's read verses 20 to 23. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great 
tribulation. Unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So, nevertheless, uh-oh, there's something wrong here. So despite all the good things, there's something quite seriously wrong. And the problem is this woman Jezebel. Now, we don't know if that's her real name, but often the Bible will, in these situations, use a name which reminds us of something in the Old Testament. Now, who's heard of Jezebel from the Old Testament? Yeah? Okay. So, the woman in the church here is a self-styled prophetess, a self-proclaimed prophetess. And in the pattern of Jezebel in the Old Testament. So God is purposefully reminding us of the stories in uh, 1 Kings 16 to 21 and 2 Kings 9 verses 30 to 37. We're going to read part of that soon. But God is doing this because the name Jezebel has a powerful association. Like We all know who Jezebel is. If we call someone a Judas, you know what that is. It's not a nice thing, is it? Or if you call someone a Hitler, you know what we call that. All right. So Jesus is calling this woman, whether her name is Jezebel or not, but he's calling her a Jezebel. Now, she's one of the most evil characters of the Old Testament. Why? Because she attempted to combine or replace the worship of God with the worship of the idol Baal and use inquisition. That's a big word. Inquisition to steal land and possessions that didn't belong to her. Remember Naboth? We'll get into that in a minute. So, Jezebel, a bit of history on Jezebel of the Old Testament. Jezebel was daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Now, Ethbaal was the high priest of Ashtaroth, the goddess of sensuality and fertility. So, if you go to her temple, you kind of get an idea of what you'd be doing there. It wasn't the right thing to do. And it's very much like today's promiscuous culture. We are a Ashtaroth culture. So, she had a big negative influence on God's people. And just as Solomon's wives turned him to worship false gods, so Ahab, King Ahab, married this woman Jezebel, and she caused him to turn Israel to worship Baal. So I'm just going to put these on the screen. So the first one is 1 Kings 16, 30-33. It tells us this little story. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So, it talks there that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, and then he went and served Baal. So, this one woman had a big influence on the nation of Israel. She caused them to start worshipping the false god Baal which included the sacrificing of animals to idols and sexually immoral practices. But it wasn't just this. She introduced the art of inquisition. Now, what is inquisition? Well, here's a dictionary definition. Inquisition, an official investigation, especially one of a political or religious nature, characterized by lack of regard for individual rights, prejudice on the part of the examiners, and recklessly cruel punishments. So I'll say that again. Inquisition is an official investigation, especially one of a political or religious nature, characterized by a lack of regard for individual rights, prejudice on the part of the examiners, and recklessly cruel punishments. So she's a master at this. She pioneered this in the scriptures. 
for example, Ahab was crying one day, and Jezebel says, Oh, what's wrong? And why are you crying? And, you know, it's the grown king crying, okay? And Ahab says, in summary here, Our power is growing and our influence is increasing, says Ahab. But a man named Naboth won't sell me his property. And he's crying over it. Poor guy. Right. Jezebel says, if you're the king, you should have it. Leave it to me. And then she hired some men to falsely accuse Naboth of cursing God. And following an inquisition or questioning and a mock trial, Naboth was put to death. So it's worth reading the story because it gives us the background to who Jezebel is and what kind of person she is. And it's going to help us later on as we look at the church prophetically. So First Kings. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 26. Now there was a man named Naboth from Jezreel who owned a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. One day Ahab said to Naboth, Since your vineyard is so convenient to my palace, I would like to buy it to use as a vegetable garden. I will give you a better vineyard in exchange, or if you prefer, I will pay you for it. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down by my ancestors. So Ahab went home angry and sullen because of Naboth's answer. The king went to bed with his face to the wall and refused to eat. Sounds like a spoiled child. What's the matter? His wife Jezebel asked him. What's made you so upset that you're not eating? I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard or trade it, but he refused, Ahab told her. Are you the king of Israel or not? Jezebel demanded. Get up and eat something and don't worry about it. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal and sent them to the elders and other leaders of the town where Naboth lived. In her letters she commanded, call the citizens together for the time of fasting and give Naboth a place of honour. And then see two scoundrels across from him who will accuse him of cursing God and the king then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and other town leaders followed the instructions Jezebel had written in the letters. They called for a fast and put Naboth at a prominent place before the people. Then the two scoundrels came and sat down across from him, and they accused Naboth before all the people, saying, He cursed God and the king. So he was dragged outside the town and stoned to death. The town leaders then sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. When Jezebel heard the news, she said to Ahab, You know the vineyard Naboth wouldn't sell you? Well, you can have it now. He's dead. So Ahab immediately went down to the vineyard of Naboth to claim it. But the Lord said to Elijah, Go down to meet King Ahab of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He will be at Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel, claiming it for himself. Give him this message. This is what the Lord says. Wasn't it enough that you killed Naboth? Must you rob him too? Because you have done this, dogs will lick your blood at the very place where they lick the blood of Naboth. So note that there's judgment coming for this kind of action. So my enemy, you have found me, Ahab exclaimed to Elijah. Yes, Elijah answered, I have come because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the Lord's sight. So now the Lord says, I will bring disaster on you and consume you. I will destroy every one of your male descendants, slave and free alike, anywhere in Israel. I am going to destroy your family as I did the family of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and the family of Basha, son of Ahijah. For you have made me very angry and have led Israel into sin. And regarding Jezebel, uh-oh, she's not getting off free. The Lord says, dogs will eat Jezebel's body at the plot of land in Jezreel. The members of Ahab's family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs, and those who die in the field will be eaten by vultures. Now, verse 25 and 26 are really important. No one else so completely sold himself to do what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife, Jezebel. 
So he did this under the influence of his wife Jezebel. He was still accountable for what he did. His worst outrage was worshipping idols just as the Amorites had done, the people whom the Lord had driven out from the land, head of the Israelites. So this is a picture of a power play and an inquisition. And guess what? In the church, prophetically speaking now, the church from 600 AD, after the fall of the Roman Empire, to 1500 AD, that's exactly what they did. Inquisition, taking land, money. So the point here is that one person can have a lot of sway in a church or a country. True? One person can have a lot of sway, a lot of influence. So just one false teacher or one false teaching can have a lot of influence, a big impact. So we need to be very careful. Now, let's look at what happened to Jezebel because, again, we're all going to come back to this when we go through the letter. It all fits in very nicely. So it's on the screen. When Jezebel, the queen mother, heard that Jehu had come to Jezreel, she painted her eyelids and fixed her hair and sat at a window. When Jehu entered the gate of the palace, she shouted at him, Have you come in peace, you murderer? You are just like Zimri, who murdered his master. And Jehu looked up and saw her at the window and shouted, Who was on my side? And two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Throw her down, Jehu yelled. So they threw her out the window. And her blood splattered against the wall and on the hooves, and Jehu trampled her body under his horse's hooves. Then Jehu went into the palace and ate and drank. Afterward he said, Someone go and bury that cursed woman, for she is a daughter of a king. But when they went out to bury her, they found only her skull, her feet and her hands. When they returned and told Jehu, he stated, This fulfills, notice this, this fulfills the message of the Lord which he spoke through his servant Elijah from Tishbe. At the plot of land in Jezreel, dogs will eat Jezebel's body. Her remains will be scattered like a dung on the plot of land in Jezreel so that no one will be able to recognize her. That was prophesied. Okay, We didn't read that, but to save time we're not going to do that. But that was prophesied. So basically, God had pronounced judgment on her. She didn't repent and God judged her. So there's lots of parallels between Jezebel in the Old Testament and this Jezebel in the New Testament. So verse 20, let's dig into what it says in this church here. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So exactly the same as what the Old Testament Jezebel did. Now, notice it says, who calls herself a prophetess. She is not a prophet from God. She's a self-proclaimed prophet. She only claimed to be a prophet. Yet, the Christians there received her as a prophetess. So, she's a false prophet. And that's why Jesus is giving this warning. And we can go to Matthew 24, verse 11. It says, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. That's Matthew 24, 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Jesus said this would happen. This church, this whole church has been deceived. Well, at least most of the people. So there's always been people who were calling themselves prophets in the church, but they are not. And we need to be careful that we don't make the same mistake as the church of Thyatira by allowing the false prophets to have authority in the church. So Jezebel's specific sin was to teach and seduce. So notice the teach, okay? To teach and seduce my servants. So she's tricking them. She's spreading false doctrine. So Jesus is describing a specific sin of this woman. She's an immoral woman, and she has an immoral and ungodly influence on other people, and she's leading 
other people into sin. Now, what does this look like at the time? If you go back to the actual time when this was written, well, remember I talked about those unions, those trade guilds? Is most likely connected to these mandatory social occasions of these guilds or unions. Perhaps a Christian was invited to the monthly meeting of the, let's say, the Goldsmiths Guild, and the meeting was held at the Temple of Apollo. Well, this Jezebel, this false prophet, would encourage the men to go, perhaps even using a prophetic word, I don't know, but most likely. And when the man went, he fell into immorality and idolatry. Shouldn't have been there. It's the wrong place to go. So I've got a quote here that explains this. It says, The draw to the guilds, the unions, and the meetings was powerful. No merchant or trader could hope to prosper or make money unless he was a member of his trade guild. And that's Barclay. Nevertheless, Christians were expected to stand in the face of this kind of pressure. One ancient Christian named Tertullian wrote about Christians who made their living in trades connected to pagan idolatry. A painter might find work in pagan temples or a sculptor might be hired to make a statue of a pagan god. They would justify this by saying, this is my living and I must live. Now Tertullian replied, must you live? They said, well, I'm a painter. I have to belong to this guild so I can get work in the town painting these temples. Can't live without money. Starve to death. And Tertullian just turned around and said, must you live? Are you willing to sacrifice? That's a good quote from Tertullian there. He's one of the early church fathers. Must you live? Do you really need that? We think we do, but we don't. And I'll come back to my servants. These people that she is tricking, these people that she is corrupting are my servants, says Jesus. So these are true Christian believers who are being led astray. They belonged to Jesus. Now, this carries a heavy penalty, and this is Mark 9.42. Jesus said, But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So, just like Jezebel in the Old Testament had a nasty ending, thrown out the window and trampled by a horse, there's not a nice future for people who lead God's children astray. Better if they were never born, as Jesus said about Judas. So, later, in this letter, in verse 24, Jesus is going to reveal a link to the work of Jezebel and false doctrine. It says this doctrine or this teaching, the depths of Satan, as they say. So Jezebel is leading others in the church of Thyatira to discover the depths of Satan, which is the pagan and occultic religion and its practices. And what it means is the, in scripture is the false cultic Babylonian religion. And basically they would say, we alone know the mysteries, the deep things. So the Babylonian priests, these priests would say, we alone know the mysteries, the deep things. Now, why would the Christians fall into this teaching about Satan, these depths of Satan? Well, it could be this. I don't know, but it could be this. And this happens today sometimes. To effectively confront Satan, you must enter his strongholds and learn his depths or teaching in order to conquer him. Is that true? People today sometimes use a similar reasoning in misguided spiritual warfare today. They focus on and learn too much about Satan instead of God. And my suggestion is that you don't need to study Satanism or the occult to know how to defeat it. The Bible gives us all the information we need about Satan to defeat Satan. We don't need any more information about Satan. We don't have to dig into the occult and find out more. Verse 21, And I gave her time to repent, and she did not. Now, what's Jezebel's greatest sin here? Is that she did not repent. So God is calling her to repentance. Who's the one calling her? It's the Holy Spirit. Okay, The Holy Spirit does the work of calling us to repentance. 
and it says, I gave her time to repent, and she did not repent. So we see here two things. We see the mercy of God, and we see the judgment of God. There is time to repent, which shows God's mercy, and she did not repent speaks to the judgment of God. God gives us time to repent, but it's not an unlimited time. There is a time when God says, like in Genesis 6.3, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Now what did God do? Flattered the earth, and only eight people survived. Okay, He gave them 120 years to repent, and they did not repent, and they were destroyed. So, this means that when God gives us time to repent, we must take advantage of that time. Now, Psalm 139.16 tells us that every person is given a set number of days to live. Did you know that? God knows how many days you're going to live, and every person is different. Some people might have 10 years, gifted with 10 years, and some people might be gifted with 100 years. It's not for us to question why. But what's important is that once those days are over, the opportunity to repent is gone. Hebrews 9.27 And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. You only get one go. So we only have one life, one chance to accept God's gift of salvation and to escape eternity in the lake of fire. Now there's a warning, exhortation in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. For God says, At just the right time I heard you. On the day of salvation I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. But what happens to the person who puts off salvation, the acceptance of forgiveness? Well, we have a warning in Hebrews 3.15. Talking about the children of Israel. Remember what it says? Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. What happened to them? They all perished in the wilderness. A 40-year funeral procession. Except Joshua and Caleb, of course. So, the more you put off becoming a Christian, when you hear the truth and you put it off and you reject it, your heart grows just a bit harder. And then you reject it again, and it's harder. And it becomes more and more difficult to accept Christ as your Savior and Lord. And this is why, if you do a survey, most Christians came to Christ when they were younger, not older, because they had so much time to harden their hearts. It says, don't harden your hearts. Now, verse 20, it says, because you allow... Now, this is the sin of the church of Thyatira. This is not the sin of Jezebel. This is not the sin of those who are doing the things that Jezebel was teaching. This is the sin of the people in the church who were letting this happen, who were not doing anything about it. Because you allow. You might not be involved in it, but you're allowing it to go on. So on the outside, they were a model church. Works, love, service, faith, patience. But there was corruption on the inside of the church. And the sin of the church was that they allowed this corruption. Now, it didn't have to be a large group following Jezebel. Remember what the scripture says in Corinthians? Just a little leaven affects a whole lump of dough. You just need a little bit of leaven and the whole loaf rises, yeah? And a few in immorality and idolatry will corrupt the whole church, especially if they have the same influence as Jezebel. So the application again is, we must root out false teaching, false teachers, and false prophets. Otherwise, the influence will spread like cancer and they will cause believers to stumble. So a verse that really helps drive home this point is 2 Timothy chapter 2, 15-18. says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. So think of that as false teaching. And their message, verse 17, will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the faith, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. 
Now, that was a particular example where they had that particular false teaching, but their message will spread like cancer. So again, false teaching must be dealt with because it will overthrow the faith of the Son. Now, what's a modern-day example of this? Well, something I've seen. As an example, some teach that if a person is not healed, it's because they don't have enough faith or there is sin in their lives. Now, often when a person who believes this false doctrine doesn't get healed, they walk away from God discouraged and dejected. It wasn't God's will for them to get healed. doesn't mean he can't, but it wasn't his will for that person at that time. But that doctrine says that everyone gets healed. And so they walk away from God because, well, I've got sin in my life. I've done everything I can. I can't try any harder. And they walk away discouraged. It's an example of causing a Christian to turn away from God. All right, verse 22 and 23. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So I will kill her children with death. I will cast her into a sickbed. This is pretty serious. It's like Jezebel was thrown out the window and trampled by a horse. Jesus is serious in his dealing with sin, especially false teaching and leading his people astray. So, I will cast her into a sickbed. So before Jesus told the Christians in Thyatira what they must do, he's first going to tell them what he's going to do. Jesus is going to discipline them. He's going to discipline this Jezebel and cast her into a sickbed, along with those who commit adultery with her. So those who follow her doctrine will suffer the same consequence as her. So these, my servants, they're going to suffer the same consequences. doesn't mean they lose their salvation, but they're going to suffer some serious consequences, some serious discipline from God. Now, a few points about this. The reference to adultery, it speaks of both sexual adultery and spiritual adultery. So when the Christians honoured these other gods, they were unfaithful to the Lord who saved them. And this is why I think the figure of a sickbed is a good one. It's a good analogy. They were guilty of adultery, both sexual and spiritual. And it's like Jesus is saying, you love an unclean bed? Here, I will give you one. I'll cast you into a sick bed. Does that make sense? You make your bed, you can lie in it. So what is a sick bed? Well, I don't know. It could be an image of affliction or it could be a literal sickness. 1 Corinthians 11.30 tells us that God can use sickness as a way to chastise his people when they are in sin. Great Tribulation. We'll come back to that next week. I'll explain that next week because we won't have time today. Verse 22, unless they repent of their deeds. Now, what's the purpose of the discipline? Repentance. It's always repentance. Jesus is always looking for us to repent. And so Jesus is amplifying his voice through this sickbed experience, whatever it was. And it's also to give an example of holiness to the other churches. Because it says, And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. So this literally happened to this church at this time when John wrote this and gave it to them. He said, I gave an opportunity to repent, she didn't, and she suffered this consequence, and the other churches saw it, and they learnt from this experience. Now, what does it mean by minds and hearts? Because Jesus searches our minds and hearts. Well, minds and hearts is literally hearts and kidneys. So in the Jewish culture, the heart is the place of the intellect, and the kidneys are the place of the emotion. So Jesus says, I know your every thought and your every feeling. And then he also says, in verse 23, I will kill her children with death. So this means her followers, those who are spiritually and physically unfaithful to God, along with her. So we've reaped what we sow. All right, verse 24 and 25. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, 
I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. So, hold fast what you have until when? Until I come. Until I come. So, there are many faithful, uncompromising Christians in Thyatira. What's Jesus' instruction to them? Hold fast. They must not stop doing what is good. They must not become distracted or discouraged from what Jesus wants them to be and to do. Now again, uh, when it says, Till I come, this is important, but we'll come back to the next week. Verse 26 to 28, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. So now, here is the reward for being faithful. So he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. So even when there is the immoral and idolatrous influence of this Jezebel, this false prophet, we can overcome. We can keep Jesus' works until the end. We can keep on going. We must not become discouraged at immorality and the idolatry around us, even among Christians. Remember, this is among Christians. Okay, It's easy to be discouraged, but don't. Hold fast is what God says to us. Now verse 26, To him I will give power over the nations. Here, there is a special promise to those who overcome the threat of immorality and idolatry. Jesus is offering them a share in his own kingdom. Now, why is Jesus using this analogy? Well, what did Jezebel do in the Old Testament? She wanted her own kingdom. Jezebel and Ahab were trying to expand their kingdom. They wanted more and more and more. They were gobbling up land through inquisitions. They were doing bad things. They got what they wanted by ungodly methods, by manipulation and coercion. Now, we can be the same today. For example, and it's not the only thing, but it's a fairly typical example, the prosperity gospel, the name and claim it, blab and grab it, some have called it. It encourages people to get what they want by manipulating God, by trying to impress God with their spirituality, by demanding things from God. So that's just an example. But here is the encouragement, the motivation to avoid all these kinds of false teaching. If you're not a part of the Jezebel mentality, you will rule and reign with me. I will give you those things. You don't have to seek them for yourself. I will give them to you. Don't go along with them. Be patient. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? The meek shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So don't try and make a kingdom for yourself on earth. Jesus will give it to you later. Now, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Where does that come from? What psalm is that? Psalm 2. Now, it's a messianic psalm. Jesus is going to come back and he is going to enforce righteousness. And those who rebel against Jesus will be smashed to pieces like a clay pot hit with an iron rod or iron bar. Okay? Smashed. Jesus includes this here to give hope to the faithful Christians of Thyatira who feel overwhelmed by the immorality and idolatry all around them. Jesus reminds them, you're on my winning team. Things look bad now. You know, the enemy's got his way. These false prophets and that are using coercion and manipulation to try and get things their own way. But one day when Jesus comes back, guess what? We will be ruling and reigning with him. And Jesus will smash any of this rebellion completely. And it will be a perfect reign. And the rule there, the word rule, it means to shepherd. It literally means to shepherd. So when we rule with Christ, it's not just a matter of executing judgment, but also administering mercy and giving people direction. So true leadership to shepherd people. That's what we'll be doing. That's what Jesus will be doing. We'll be helping him. And the last part of this verse, it says, I will give him the morning star. So what is the morning star? 
I'll give you a hint. It tells us in Revelation 22, verse 16. It's Jesus. Jesus is the morning star. You can't get a greater reward than this. Jesus is saying, I will give you myself. That's pretty cool, eh? I will give you myself. I will give you the morning star. And then verse 29, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, who does this apply to? Well, it applies to everyone, just to finish up quickly. It applies to those who are like Jezebel, who lead others into sin. It applies to those who follow the teaching of Jezebel and follow them into sin. It applies to those who permit a Jezebel to work in her wickedness within the church. And finally, it applies to those who are faithful and must hold fast. So, I won't stop there. I'm going to leave you with a question though. Which church in history do you think this applies to? Okay, think of Inquisition. Think of sexual immorality. Think of idolatry. I was going to do it this week, but I don't have time now. So, to do it properly, I'll talk about it next week as I go into the next church. It fits in nicely with the next one. So, yeah, think about what church could this be speaking to? And I'll give you a hint. It's from AD 600 to AD 1500. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for what you've shown us today. Lord, hold fast until I come. And Lord, we might be really discouraged. Lord, we might be put down. We might be in the minority. The church might be corrupt. The world might be corrupt. But Lord, we have this promise that you're going to come back. You're going to set everything straight. And we're going to find ourselves on the winning team. So I just thank you for that, Father. Thank you for the awesome promise that no matter how bad things seem here, no matter how lonely we can feel, that, Lord, we can find our security, we can find our rest, we can find our comfort in you. We are on the winning team. We are going to be ruling and shepherding on this earth with you when you come back. All this bad stuff that's happening now is only temporary. And, Lord, we also just pray that like the message to Jezebel, I gave her time to repent and she did not. I pray that that would not be true for the people who are listening here. Lord, I pray that people would repent before it is too late. They would accept salvation and they would grow to love you with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. That They would accept your gift of forgiveness and repent and give their lives to you before it's too late, before their hearts get too hard. So I just pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.